Hey everybody, welcome to the show. We've got Dr. Jessica Drummond with us today. She's a founder of the Integrative Women's Health Institute and she's passionate about empowering women who struggle with chronic pelvic pain conditions and hormonal imbalances. She does help female athletes and she does a lot of work supporting women's health and wellness professionals globally. She's got two decades of experience working with women using physical therapy and functional nutrition, as well as teaching her colleagues from an integrative, evidence-based and conservative perspective. I was telling Marika recently about um, how Jess was on my course in Austin, Texas and some of the experiences that we both had through that process. And um, we thought it would be great to get her on the show because Marika had a question, which was, why are new mothers tired all the time? What's this depletion, this whole uh, needing to, to recover more? And so we thought we'll dip our toe into the integrative health side of things. And who better to ask than, uh, than Jessica? So hope you enjoy the show. And here comes the usual bit um, about what's going on. Cheers. Welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. I'm Anthony Lowe, the Physio Detective. And I'm Marika Hart from Herosphere. Together, we interview leading authorities and we answer questions and share our thoughts to provide the general public with the best quality information that we can find on all aspects related to women's health. Please remember that the materials and content on this podcast are intended as general information and they are for entertainment purposes only. They're not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice diagnosis or treatment. Now sit back, grab your favorite beverage, or do your thing, and enjoy the show. Uh, we've got my co-host Marika. Welcome again. Hi Marika, how are you going? Good morning, Anthony. I'm great. <laughs> Beautiful. We've got Elaine who's going to be helping us with the show notes. Thanks for joining us again, Elaine. You're most welcome. And of course, we've got um, Jessica. Jessica, thanks for coming on the show and looking forward to hearing lots about uh, what you have to say about postnatal, um, you know, things like depletion, why people feel like they have low energy. Um, this is certainly an area that I don't pretend to understand. I, I understand that it exists, but I don't have much training in the way of this. So I'm, I'm really keen to hear about um, what you have to say on that. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. So Jessica, what, um, just to kick off this talk, what would you say are some of the common complaints that uh, women have in their, let's just say in the first 12 months postnatally, that is not so much from a musculoskeletal pelvic health side of things, which I know that you deal a lot with as well, but um, from, from the sort of, I guess, um, maybe some of the fatigue, exhaustion, um, things that maybe women kind of write off as being, well, I've just had a baby, my baby doesn't sleep very much, but perhaps there's something more to it. Yeah, so really my journey into the world of nutrition and more integrative medicine from purely physical therapy really started postpartum, although I didn't know it until, until about four years postpartum, um, because that was my experience after the birth of my first daughter. I was really fatigued. I was getting every cold and flu, you know, in the world. I had like four sinus infections. I had uh, pneumonia or something like that at one point. And 
the answer was generally, well, this is what it's like. You know, you've got a baby now. Don't you're your mom? What do you expect? Come yeah, on. like what are you thinking? And and I had a pretty uncomplicated first pregnancy. I worked as a women's health physical therapist. I was teaching mother baby exercise classes right up until about three weeks before my oldest daughter was born. So, and I had a normal, healthy delivery. She was born at 38 weeks, but it was nothing premature. Everything was term, and you know we were out of the hospital in two days is as you are in the US. I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but yeah, that's frequent. That's standard. Yeah. And so we um and so, you know, initially I, I think you do expect that you're going to be more tired because the baby, you know, is up off and on around the clock. But and I had about I'm trying to remember how much time I took off from work. The other thing that happens in the U.S. that's a little different, at least from Europe, and I'm not sure of what the standard is in, in um, Australia, but we're back to work at about six to maybe 10 to 12 weeks on the outside. Um, 12 weeks is kind of standard corporate maternity leave. I was back teaching mother baby exercise and working part-time at about 10 weeks. Um, so there's, you're really working pretty quick. And so you don't have this opportunity to sort of sleep more during the day when the baby sleeps, you know, that kind of thing. And then also if, if it's not your first child, a lot of times you have toddlers who are awake, you know, during the week. So there is definitely a sleep deprivation component. But what I learned from my personal experience and then later through a lot more training and working with different patients is that for some women, it's, it's a fatigue that's very deep. It's a different kind. It's not, I'm just tired. You know, it, when you're tired, if someone gives you 24 hours to just sleep, like let's say, you know, your partner takes the baby over one night or you're partner and your mother-in-law or something or your mom or your friend kind of gives you like 12 to 24 hours to get a good sleep and then you can sort of bounce back right you feel a bit more refreshed and ready to go. yeah you yeah. can sleep fatigue is really more where first of all it's hard to even sleep when you have the chance sometimes it's kind of combined with insomnia and second you could sleep and sleep and sleep and it's still like an empty well of exhaustion. Um, and so there are a couple of different reasons that this happens postpartum. One, I think, is just the nutrient depletion of postpartum. It's interesting, you actually need more micronutrients and even calories postpartum than you do pregnancy. Um, because the work, the physiologic work of breastfeeding requires just more physical energy. So assuming you're nursing, but so just, I, I think sorry, even, just yeah. on that, do you know approximately how many more calories you would need for breastfeeding? Yeah, something like 300 more kilocalories a day. Okay. And it's about 200 in pregnancy. Is that right? Well, it's 300 additionally postpartum. So I'm not sure what the, I think it's about double what you need. Yeah. So about 200 additional in pregnancy and then 300 on top of that. Oh, even on top of that extra 200. So 500 yeah. on top of what you would be. Yeah. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's quite substantial. Yeah. So. Be cutting your calories and trying to. Right. Right. And, and, you know, that's the other thing, like how quickly can you get back into your skinny jeans? Right. Like and that's, uh, that's the stupidest thing ever. So. 
but there's also a nutrient absorption challenge. You know, women are just, they're not chewing. They're not, you know, a lot of times digestive function isn't optimal. They might have struggled with constipation or bloating or some food sensitivities. And I think the most common thing that isn't really talked about postpartum is that there's a change in immune function. So the, there's dominant immune parts of your immune system. Certain um, cells, Th1 versus Th2, are more dominant in different times in your life. So during pregnancy, to really simplify this to make it well understandable, the immune system is somewhat quieted. It's naturally suppressed, which makes sense because we don't want a infection of the fetus, right? Because the fetus is half not you. Um, and then postpartum, that sort of more pro-inflammatory part of the immune system is activated. And so it's a very common time for things like autoimmune disease to be triggered, like postpartum thyroiditis. Or, and, and again, there isn't a lot of research on this, but I think this is also the time when it's risky to have viral reactivations. So for me, I think one of the, I had mono a couple times when I was a kid because I was a very high level athlete and I you know, was kind of a type A stressor. I, you know, I didn't even realize it, that's just how I lived. So I had mono twice, one, well, twice in high school. And, you know, at the time it was like, oh, that never happens. This is so rare, right? But now we understand that viruses really don't, they're not like cured. They sort of just go into hiding. American, what is mono? mono is Epstein-Barr virus. And so... What do we call it, Anthony? We call it something different here, don't we? Glandular fever, isn't it? Mononucleosis. Yeah. Thank you. I was like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Just clarifying for the uh, international audience. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so essentially, what happens is there's these kind of big swings in natural immunity, which are exacerbated by any disruption in digestive function. Because if you think about it, internally, your small intestinal lining functions a lot like your skin as a first barrier for keeping things away from your immune system, right? And also, like, did you really chew and break down that food? Was there enough stomach acid? Did you have enough digestive enzymes? So that by the time the food gets to your small intestine, has most of the bacteria that's on it. You know, none of our food is sterile, right? We just live in bacterial environment, and that's perfectly fine. But most of it should be eradicated by the stomach, the acid in your stomach, and by the chewing process and by digestive enzymes. And then you have this lining of the small intestine that functions as another good barrier between food or anything coming in through the mouth from outside and your immune system. So this is a time when things like food sensitivities can be triggered, thyroid autoimmunity can be triggered, viral reactivations can be triggered. And so those are the key things that I'm really looking for when someone postpartum is excessively tired. And I think just a kind of rule of thumb way to assess that is, you know, if you're given 
a couple days off during the month to just really restore. Someone takes the baby, you've got some support, you're able to get to sleep. Do you feel better after you do that or do you still feel pretty rough? That was so interesting. I, I've been actually writing notes down as well, Jessica. <laughs> One of the things that I think is really fascinating, um, I, I actually also see a lot of people with these random autoimmune conditions that show up postnatally. And um, Anthony, I'm sure you see this as well, where lots of um, new mums will say, oh, my knee's been really sore lately. And I'll always ask that extra question. Are there any other joints that are... That are um, that are randomly sore as well. Oh yeah, my fingers have been a little bit sore and I've got this shoulder pain. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more as to some of the other musculoskeletal things that you see that may be um, arthritic conditions that pop up in that postnatal period as well that might be related? Yeah, well certainly rheumatoid arthritis, um, uh, uh, psor psoriatic arthritis, which is an autoimmune related condition. Um, you know, the research that I published last year was interesting in that we, I had a patient who, who had vulvodynia, which we don't normally think of as an autoimmune condition, but those of us with, who are public health, uh, you know, experts, I guess, see a lot of patients with vulvodynia, which is a very specific pain in part of the vulva, external part of the vagina. And when, again, this was a kind of patient that sometimes I would see their symptoms would get better in pregnancy and then get exacerbated postpartum. So similar to joint pain, and, and a lot of times these autoimmune conditions will be overlapping. People will have more than one. They'll have psoriasis on the skin. They'll have, you know, auto, uh, joint pain that's more rheumatoid than, you know, than more of like a orthopedic issue. Um, so vulvodynia can be in that, that category. Endometriosis has some degree of autoimmune component. So what we, what I did was we, ha I had a patient who had her vulvodynia quieted down that first about 15 weeks of pregnancy and her pain was really down, but she had had terrible pain for years before that. And I said, okay, what I used to do is just say, well, Hey, enjoy it. And then come back to see me in like six weeks postpartum when everything comes firing back, right? But instead, we took a very systematic approach to optimizing her digestion, talking about what I was kind of just explaining through there, like making sure her stomach acid was functioning, she was chewing well, her stress was good, her exercise was balanced. And then you know, didn't just wait it out, like made sure she had a lot of nutrient sufficiency, that her digestive lining was healthy, that she was taking good quality probiotics. We were really kind of amping up that interface between the digestive system and the immune system. And through, as long as I've followed her now, which has been about 18 months, um, you know, her pain has never returned. So I think we have an opportunity actually in pregnancy to potentially prevent and maybe even use that immune shift to support you know, the quieting of autoimmune conditions. So if we see that in pregnancy or if someone had it prior to pregnancy, we can utilize pregnancy to really optimize the digestive and immune functions such that, and then of course we have to maintain that, you know, we're still eating really cleanly, we're still taking probiotics, all of that. Um, but then postpartum, it's able to be maintained. So the most common symptoms are really going to be things like deep chronic fatigue. Sometimes that goes along with anxiety. 
um, because it, if it's a hormonal issue, which we can get into in a minute, but deep fatigue, skin breakouts, especially things like rashes, starting to be more food sensitive, uh, digestive complaints, joint pain, chronic, any chronic pain anywhere, headaches, vulvodynia. Um, those are the things that I'm really looking for when I'm just in, in, in uh, thyroid condition, also things like colds, hands and feet, hair falling out. Some women do have kind of this transient period of hair loss postpartum that just comes back. But anytime I see that, you know, I'm still thinking of this red flag going up. That's really interesting. It's um, so, so the link seemed to be that the vulvodynia was um, affected by possibly things like digestion, hormonal influences, um, stress on the system triggering a pain uh, symptom is, is, am I understanding it correctly? And I'm happy to be the ignorant one in the room. Because yeah, I mean, I, I really, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really do think that vulvodynia is at least partially an autoimmune condition. Wow, that's um, wow. Like, I mean, that's that's really different, right? And you know that I like different. I'm okay with different. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. have so so. You know, I hear about these axes, right? Like the HPA axis. And to me, an axis is something that you move around. Like we have an axis of rotation. Um, is that related to it? I, I uh, you know. <laughs> I don't understand the the physiological nature and, and working of hormones and and the effects of the of human physiology. It's it's an area that I can study and that I know that I'll get. It's just that it's not something I'm interested in. But I realise just how important it is. And um, so Anthony wants the cliff notes, right? You want Jessica yeah. to to give yeah, us the version of tell me what this actually is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, that's a good question. And and I'll admit, so I went to physical therapy school because you didn't have to take biochem. That's like the main reason I didn't go to med school. And <laughs> which is ridiculous. Oh, irony. <laughs> yeah, which is ridiculous because I literally do biochem like all day, every day. It's why I didn't go do post-grad med, you know. Um, I didn't want to study. <laughs> so, Yeah. Right. And actually, I don't at all regret not going to medical school because that's also just pure torture. But um, <laughs> the, so I'm super happy with the career that that led me down. But now I do a lot of biochemistry and it, it, it is very important. And I think it, what's so interesting from a physical standpoint, so vulvodynia, as an example, is literally a very specific pain in the external vulva. And so it's pain on penetration, it's pain with wearing tight jeans, it's pain with sitting, sometimes it's provoked, sometimes it's always there. So there's definitely a myofascial component, right? Because when we teach patients to learn to relax the pelvic floor, that's helpful. There's oftentimes a hormonal component because the pain can show up cyclically with the menstrual cycle. Um, and I believe there's this autoimmune component. So. And it also may be that there are different presentations in different people, right? Certain parts of that, those three things may be more dominant. So 
let's go back to the hormonal axes. So hormonal axes can be involved postpartum um, in, the, in the sense that they're, they're all linked together. So you've got the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is essentially your stress buffering system. Starts in the hypothalamus in the brain, communicates to the pituitary gland, and then communicates to your adrenal glands, which are two little glands that sit on top of your kidney. And the main hormone involved in that axis is cortisol, which is a stress buffering hormone. Um, and norepinephrine and epinephrine if like cortisol's not enough to, to get the job done. Um, cortisol has a very intricate relationship with in, uh, insulin. So it's very affected by blood sugar levels and that's one way that we can kind of help get cortisol back in balance. Also, there's the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, the HPT axis. And so for example, cortisol can inhibit the conversion of certain steps in that HPT axis. So anytime there's a thyroid issue, oftentimes, actually in Western societies, the most common thyroid is, issue is really an autoimmune issue. So it's not really that the thyroid is not functioning, it's that the immune system is attacking the thyroid. So, but even still, I'm always making sure that kind of the base of that pyramid is really the HPA axis, the cortisol stress buffering axis. And even below that, you could say would be just blood sugar balance and insulin. Then we layer onto that thyroid. Then we layer on the sex hormone axis, which is either, which is hypothalamus, pituitary, and then ovaries or testes. So postpartum, you have normal estrogen suppression when you're nursing, um, but you can also have the cortisol and the thyroid or the adrenal and the thyroid axis being out of whack. Um, like I said, postpartum thyroiditis can be pretty common, and there's a very relatively simple way to prevent that. There's some good data that if you just take 200 micrograms of selenium, starting uh, preconception and, and even in the beginning of pregnancy through postpartum, the risk of postpartum thyroiditis goes down considerably. So sometimes it's just not being nutrient deficient. And you know, people really are walking around nutrient deficient. Even female elite athletes are really not getting the level of micronutrients that they need. And then what happens is the baby is always the first diversion, right? So the baby's gonna get, they'll start taking it out of your bones or, However, the baby gets it first. So that's another reason moms end up depleted. So if you consider that stress is at least our, like our hormonal stress buffering system is intricately related to blood sugar, now consider what the average busy new mom who's probably working and has a couple toddlers eats, right? So you get up in the morning, you're exhausted already. So you start your day with coffee, which is like sugar. Just think of it as sugar. Coffee is just sugar. And then you add to that, right? There you go. You add to that a bagel or maybe a donut or something, a bowl of cereal. There you go. Everyone's drinking coffee. I forgot it's morning where you are. So we're going to walk through your day. Okay. So you have your coffee and your sugar bomb. And then, you know, the body elevated blood sugar is a physiologic emergency, right? So the body is designed 
to keep that in check. Your insulin is gonna respond to that so that your brain and heart can continue to function. So when blood sugar goes up, insulin, and after a while, the cells can't keep taking in all this sugar, so they become insulin resistant. And so then you get kind of, and if it, when it does work, when you know the insulin really quickly gets that blood sugar back down, cortisol is designed to bring it back up. So all day long, there's this like roller coaster of high blood sugar. So you start your day with coffee and a donut. You have this crash again at like 10 o'clock where I'm hungry, I need a protein bar, I need a candy bar, I need whatever, I need a snack. Then that's because your blood sugar is dropping. If it doesn't drop, then cortisol is going to kick in and push it back up for you. And that's why there's an anxiety component to, to this imbalance because... If that's not enough, you'll also get a kind of a shot of epinephrine, norepinephrine. So keeping blood sugar in the, in the tightest possible range is what your body physiologically defaults to. So insulin and cortisol act against each other to make sure that blood sugar doesn't go too high or too low. And so all day long, we're sort of in this up and down pattern. Coffee and donut for breakfast, starving at 10 o'clock that's the the term hangry do you guys use that at all like when people are like hungry angry oh, yeah. <laughs> hungry angry shaky crashy that is your blood sugar going too low then cortisol is going to kick in then again you're going to eat something that's probably carby because you have sugar cravings at the same time or at lunch you just happen to eat like a bowl of pasta or a sandwich or something like that and then again too high too low just because of our normal diet. Now, that system is not designed to really work like that. It's supposed to happen a few times a year, like, you know, if there's some kind of emergency. It's not supposed to be like up and down, up and down. And the other thing that, that, that makes it kind of go out of range can be stress. So again, if you imagine, like you can get this little burst of cortisol you know, anytime your phone notifications go off or like your toddler is standing on the dresser when you walk in, like, you know what that feels like, right? If you just kind of imagine you come out of the bathroom and your toddler is like standing in a drawer and about to spill something, there's this like wave of rush, right? That's like, that's the Carol. sensation of cortisol. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, and that happens all, to us all day long. So between how we eat and our kind of daily stressors, you know, just news and notifications and things like that, we get these little bursts of kind of depleting hormones because cortisol is a, a, a hormone that's designed to kind of break you down to utilize any kind of stored energy energy or emergency, like that fight or flight real emergency. Now, fortunately in women, we can buffer that stress response using kind of connection to other women. So it's really important that women postpartum have people, other women primarily, that they feel like they can connect with. And you actually have this physiologic risk when let's say you try to join your neighborhood mom's group and like you get sort of ousted for some reason. That's a physiologic risk. The body's like warning bells go off because 
imagine if, you know, evolutionarily, you were sort of kicked out of the tribe with your infant, you know, you're in big trouble. Like you're probably going to starve to death, right? There aren't like other neighborhood groups you can join, right? So, they, so it's important for women. Women have kind of a, a deep-seated fear of reaching out to connect with other women because there is a hormonal fear of rejection. But if it does happen, when you find your tribe, there's some real benefit to that hormonally. It actually eases the stress response. You don't have as big of a cortisol response to stressors when you have a few women friends that you feel connected to. Or that sisters. Oh, so interesting. Because I, I read something recently that was saying in terms of um, uh, uh, recovery from, I think it's recovery from breast cancer. And if you have five close friends, your chances of survival are, I'm making up the stats completely, Jessica, but you know, like 10 times higher or something. Yeah. And, I, and I reach out to a bunch of my girlfriends. I was like, you know, we need to spend more time together. And not just for the sake that we'll, we'll live longer, but obviously it has real health benefits. So I find that really interesting for the new mums because uh, I run postnatal classes and I try and get them all to, you know, hang around and have a coffee afterwards or if they're feeding, just have a little bit of a chit chat. We do lots of partner work so they can actually have those conversations and get to know each other. Cause it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like going on a blind date sometimes when you're a new mum and you're meeting other new mums and you're like, are they going to like me? Are we going to get along? Or are we going to have similar, you know, ideas about parenting or whatever? And it's a little bit scary sometimes. Yeah. And that's really important, that bonding period where you feel like you've got someone. And, and it also is a big problem because many new moms are pretty isolated now, right? You, you're home, you're by yourself. Maybe you've got some connections online in a Facebook group or something. And that's okay, but it's not, it's not nearly as good as having actual people that you could call and connect with and sit on the floor and like play with your babies. You know, that makes a huge difference. And that's also one of the challenges for women who go back to work at six or eight weeks because, you know, you're back with your colleagues and some of them might be women, some of them might be new mothers, but, you know, maybe, maybe not. Like, so it's challenging really finding that, that connected group. And it doesn't have to be a lot of people. Two to five is, is about range, but just knowing that you could trust them, that you could like, you know, sit there and breastfeed and hormonally cry and all of that stuff in, uh, in their presence is really, really valuable from a health standpoint. Just, um, just quickly, if I could summarize, because, you know, I struggle to learn this stuff. So, so if we could just summarize what you just said, um, there seems to be some layers, like you were talking about layers. And so you talked about blood sugar and, um, uh, I don't remember the other one, but cortisol. Sugar, uh, yeah, and that's a basic. Well, there's a bottom layer, and then there's the HPA axis of which cortisol is a part of, and then you layer on top of that the thyroid, and then you layer on top of that the um, HP ovaries or the HP testes, like the sex hormones on top. And mm -hmm. um, you you seem to be saying that. Um, we really need to take care of that foundation, the fluctuations in blood sugar. Um, really, that hormonal system is designed for emergencies, and yet we seem to be putting ourselves through it three to five times a day, um, which creates a very stressful environment. And then one of the ways that we can counter that modern day cultural stress is human connection, which 
there's a very big leap from this is physio physiologically what's happening with your hormones to hey human connection you know we come back to connection again and you've heard me talk about connection um you know where, where connection can actually even out the response of cortisol have i summarized what you've said so far relatively accurately yeah yeah that's really true and and an important thing about the layers is that you can't really skip like you can i mean let's say someone has low estrogen and you know thus they have vaginal dryness right you could give someone a vulvar estrogen cream like you can replace it at the top level but you're not fixing the root of the problem and i'm not and it's not to say that giving vulvar estrogen cream is never appropriate sometimes it is useful and it can be a good crutch and sometimes it's the long term solution depending on the situation but we don't want to start there. It's the same thing. Like I can give someone chase tree Vitex as a way to stimulate their progesterone. It's an herbal uh, supplement. But again, that's starting at the top of the pyramid. Much better to first think about balancing their blood sugar, thinking about balancing their stress. The other thing that's very important for balancing that HPA axis is maintaining a balanced circadian rhythm. So turning off, you know, ideally I wouldn't be like, actually I should be putting on my like blue light blocking glasses right now because it's after dark here, you know, things like that. Shouldn't be exposed to all the blue. Should be going to bed at a reasonable time. Um, getting up in the morning and actually going outside and spending time in true sunlight without glasses on. Because we it's surprising, but if you start to think about it, like we really are not outside much in the day. So it's not only that we're being exposed to blue light past dark, but we're barely being exposed to daylight during the day. And that changes the rhythm of, of cortisol, which does have this natural rhythm. It's also part of the problem why people have a lot of trouble sleeping and postpartum or any time, but definitely postpartum, because if you get up to nurse, you might turn lights on, you might check your phone. Like one thing you shouldn't do when you're up nursing is start checking your phone. Like just keep it as dark as you can. Really these amber glasses are very helpful. I, I wear stuff like this for any overseas flights that I take. I wear it the whole time just to kind of give that system a break. And they have some, two of them on my desk because they have some that are a little like warm during the day. So if you're in fluorescent lights all day long, uh, like in an office or something like that, you can do that. But just don't, you know, even if you don't put glasses on, you just get up in the morning, you keep the lights dim, you go, I mean, you get up in the night, you go and nurse, and go back to bed, don't like start getting on your Facebook groups. Like that's just a bad thing to do in terms of, because what that does is it immediately suppresses your melatonin production and melatonin is required for sleep. So circadian rhythms, having routine, the brain and the bowels both like routine. So we try to get that as quickly as possible postpartum, but you know, as much as the baby will listen. and. Um, and then balancing the blood sugar, having some social connection, having some consistent movement as well, which is important also for digestion. And then you can start to layer on the more complex things like, you know, gut 
healing and the right probiotics and you know restoring nutrients but you can do a lot of that just naturally when you get the systems functioning better you know if if the digestion is working you don't need a lot of supplements because every time you eat vegetables you're actually absorbing the nutrients in them does that make sense oh 100% um so like i mean you know we all talk a holistic game but what, you're, what you seem to be saying is that we take care of the basics, we take care of our diet, our sleep, um, our exercise, um, you know, minimize the stress on the body, let things even out a little bit first. Um, then when it comes to dealing with some of the, the top tier type things, you may need less intervention because you've got the support from below. Um, is, is that... Close. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's really, I think, the, the map to sustainable integrative healing. I think you can't skip the foundation, right? We can, we can add supplements, we can add you know, manual therapy, we can do sort of like the analogy that you gave in the course I was with you a couple weeks ago, where you know, you're holding onto the mountain, you got the baby over here, sure. You can massage the neck all you want. <laughs> and it's the same thing with the pelvic floor too, for sure. Same thing with your knee joint, you know, you can massage that all you want, but if you have, you know, 15 HSCRP, like if your inflammation internally is like through the roof, um, that massage is not going to last you know the manual therapy that you could do a grade five manipulation it's going to be okay for like a few minutes but it's not going to be sustained so it's really the same thing with an autoimmune condition and, and a lot of these autoimmune conditions have myofascial and musculoskeletal symptoms but if we treat those those symptoms without restoring the baseline foundation of I think of these truly as like health skills. Really, everybody needs them for everything, right? You need to know like what your bedtime rhythm is. You need to know how to how to keep a, a pretty consistent sleep schedule. You need to know how much exercise is good for you and how much is too much and how much is too little. Like these basic foundational skills, vegetables, digestion, water, you know, we skip that and then we try to intervene with herbs and complicated manual therapy techniques and medications and surgeries and none of it works as well if you skip the bottom oh spot on jessica that was a great summary <laughs> i um i was just going to ask something i've had a little mental blank hang on. oh blood sugars um so you talked about blood sugars and these sort of spikes and troughs that um we go through over the course of the day uh where our body is basically just trying to level stuff out and we keep throwing things at it that it needs to respond to. Um, do you have any tips for mums? Um, so let's say we've got a new mum who is already pretty tired. Um, what would you suggest is a good way of getting that um, good nutrition into her that's not going to make her blood sugar go crazy? Let's, let's, for example, let's start with a breakfast. What would be a good breakfast idea that's easy to prepare um, that will help support her for the first half of the day? Yeah, and I actually think breakfast is the key to healing this um, in terms of fatigue because you need to start the day with that solid foundation so you're not craving the snack. You know, it sort of spirals into each other, right? So 
omelets with vegetables or even just literally like scrambled eggs with vegetables. Like don't make it fancy. Like my, my daughter leaves the house at 6.45. So at about 6.20, I'm downstairs like throwing a few vegetables in a pan with some uh, olive oil and like a couple of scrambled eggs and just smush it around until it all cooks and just give it to her, you know, like <laughs> that's an easy one. Another way to do that is to make muffins that are basically just little omelets and then you can freeze them and like baked eggs and other vegetables and you could put some sausage in there or anything like that. So basically protein, vegetables, high quality fat is what you want at each meal. And high quality fat could be avocados, could be olive oil, could be nuts or seeds, things like that salmon smoked salmon so if i'm traveling a lot of times i'll just buy like a thing of smoked salmon and eat that in the morning with like an apple and some peanut butter um let's see i also like dinner leftover for breakfast so i know it's, it's summer where you guys are now so it's less appealing but you know where i am it's like 35 degrees which is i don't know what that is celsius um <laughs> but it's it's low it's cold <laughs> So, you know, I'll make like a big pot of chicken soup and just eat some of it for breakfast or some kind of vegetable meat soup. Um, soup is good. The, and then for summer, smoothies are great. So you could do avocado, some protein powder, or the other thing I do is make like a couple of just sausages, like low nitrate sausage, just little breakfast ones, and you can heat them up in the toaster oven while you make a smoothie. And then just do something like avocados, some frozen berries. I have a recipe on my website actually for like the postpartum smoothie. It's basically avocados, some frozen berries, so it tastes like a milkshake, almond or hemp or coconut milk, something like that, and protein powder. And you could throw a greens powder and you could actually put greens in it, or you could just, there's a lot of high quality like greens powders that you can just add, which are basically just dehydrated greens. So that gets you a quick kind of burst of fiber. We have them in Australia, Anthony. Yeah, we do. They're expensive, but we have them. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, if that's too expensive, you can take like any green, throw a handful of them in. Um, so, you know, and, and you can make that, you can kind of prep that stuff in advance. You could put some of the, like you could chop up the avocado and the berries for the week and just leave them all in separate little containers in your freezer and then throw it in the blender. Um, so smoothies are good for that. I usually have a little extra protein with that. Um, those are probably my easiest breakfast ideas, either leftover dinner, some kind of eggs and veggies, like something like smoked salmon and whatever else you have around or a protein shake with fat. So if you do protein, fat, and fiber, which is generally gonna be vegetables, at each meal, you keep that really steady. And you'll also find that you're less hungry and craving and all of that. And, and it can be whole grains, you know, we're not against any food groups here. There are some great high quality grains. So you could also do like a porridge with um, berries and nuts and seeds and things like that. Um, but in the, in the morning, I actually think that sort of old adage of like, eat like a king at breakfast and I don't know, then it gets less from there, is, is actually very sound advice when it comes to blood sugar balance. So protein, fat, fiber, which is generally from vegetables. The, the WHO recommendation for daily vegetable intake is actually 10 servings a day. 
in America, they suggest five because they they don't think we can do it. Um, like it's unachievable. No one really can try. <laughs> no. So when we like to win things, right? So we always just set the bar lower. Um, <laughs> but you know, so if you're going to do that, you got to start at breakfast, right? It's kind of like you can't drink all day if you don't start in the morning. It's like the same thing with vegetables. My husband and I did like an elimination diet kind of thing. Oh, it must be about eight years ago now. And of that for a month, we pretty much had exactly what you're saying. So some kind of protein, vegetables, usually cooked in coconut oil with some spices and things. When the month was over, even though we started introducing things back in, we never, ever went back to having toast or cereal for breakfast ever. Because mm. what we noticed was um, for both of us, that 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock dip, I mean, I, was, I don't get hungry till typically noon, maybe one o'clock for lunch. Um, and we still do that. Not, not every single day, but most days it'll be eggs, vegetables, cooked in some kind of oil with some herbs and spices. And um, it, yeah, really, really keeps me going. And I, I always thought for me, porridge was, was so good because you know, it was just one of those things that was advertised as being um, low GI and will keep, make you last longer. But I was always so hungry by like 10, 10, 30 and craving the sugar high. And yeah. Um, yeah, and I noticed that if I go back to eating porridge now, I'm starving by like 10 o'clock. I'm just like, give me something. Well, and that's the gauge because there is kind of a range of normal healthy diets, right? Some people actually do thrive quite well on more of a vegan, vegetarian, um, even raw, relatively raw foods. It has to be, you know, vegetable heavy, but some people really do fine with like good quality whole grains. And that's the gauge. If you feel steady, like not hungry, not craving something, then whatever you had for breakfast was the right thing for your body. And I always say in my classes, like, eventually, if you do this for at least three weeks, you should literally be able to like get on a plane. Like now when I fly internationally, I pretty much fast. Um, maybe I'll bring a few nuts with me. I'll drink water. But you should be able to go, you know, 12, 24 hours without feeling hungry once you're entrained to this. And, and that's really important. That's a sign that your blood sugar is really stable. So during the day, every six hours is ideal um, because, I mean, you certainly can wait longer. Some people don't need to eat that much, but you do kind of need to eat three meals to really get all the vegetables in and just get enough nutrients from food. But your, your, your digestive tract is not designed to be constantly working all day. So every six hours is good. So it actually has like a rest in between. It's not really normal to eat like every, like all day long, every two hours, little snacks here and there. So if I say to you like, hey, I've got a plane ticket to France, you know, we have to leave now and you can't eat. If you don't feel like you could go, because you're like, what? I can't eat till I get there? Then your blood sugar is not stable. With, um, with my female power athletes, with my female competitive athletes, um, a lot of them have tried things like a paleo or a fat adapted diet. And quite a lot of them say that they don't do well unless they add some carbohydrate um, to supplement. What does the demands of exercise due to that type of uh to that type of diet and i know that you're not cutting anything out 
I'm just saying what would be the considerations uh, for, for somebody who's exercising every day for at least an hour, maybe two or three. Yes. In that case, and actually in any case where they're pretty active, for women, so a, pa a pure paleo and definitely a ketogenic diet is no grains at all. And a ketogenic diet is like not even really any starchy vegetables. It's very low carb. Generally speaking, I don't recommend ketogenic diets for athletes at all. Maybe men, it's a little bit of a different story. I, I'm not as well versed in, in men, so there may be some cases. For women, I would not recommend a ketogenic diet in general other than a short-term period, like if they're trying to do a significant weight loss or something like that for me, you know, you could do it for like three years, um, but not for an athlete. Um, and if the, the only other time it's very reasonable to do a ketogenic diet is it's a therapeutic diet for um, seizures. So if someone has a seizure condition, it's a therapeutic diet. Now, paleo is a little step below that, so it's no grains at all, like if you're doing pure paleo, no grains at all, but you could have more starchy vegetables like sweet potatoes and squashes and things like that. I find, even for my active athletic women, high-level athletes, that they can, again, do that to kind of get the blood sugar stable for a couple weeks, like maybe one to three weeks, if their blood sugar's been, if, you know, if they've been carb loading for their whole career and so they like have to make a transition, then doing that's helpful because it can kind of like cut all the cravings faster. Um, but no, for most women, actually being no grain at all, I find is, is too hard on actually the HPA axis it's physiologic so you end up having and the data shows that you end up having elevations in cortisol which you don't want because remember cortisol breaks things down and it's inflammatory it can be inflammatory so for most women that are active at that level um, there's either there's one of two things that are more appropriate for the heavy strength trainers most of them tend to do better with animal protein although there are a subset that can thrive on a vegetarian or even vegan diet, but most do better with animal protein, high quality fat, vegetables. And what I suggest is that they have whole gluten-free grains three to four times a week. So something like brown rice, millet, amaranth, buckwheat, teff, sorghum, there's all kinds of other grains. And the other thing you need from grains that it's hard to sometimes replace in enough volume without supplements is uh, certain B vitamins. So I think for highly active women, most of the time their HPA is more balanced, they're more satisfied, they're less physiologically stressed with whole grain servings of three to four times a week. And maybe even a little bit more if they're doing like three hours in the gym, that might even be once a day. And I usually recommend that they do that in the afternoon, not like right at night and not first thing in the morning because that's when they're going to burn through all that energy. All right, but um, I was just sitting there thinking, okay, so maybe what if their experiences of trying to do things like that has come from not taking care of the bottom of the pyramid type stuff you've been saying before? Um, would that be also a consideration as to why previous attempts might not have been successful? That's certainly also popular, but possible. I mean, it could have been that, you know, they're not sleeping well, that they're not hydrated enough. It could be that their digestive function is off. 
So if they have low stomach acid, you know, what if they take again heartburn medication five years or um, you know, they just don't have enough stomach acid genetically. Certain genetic uh, profiles have naturally more stomach acid than others. So if, for example, you have a blood type of A, it's more correlated to having lower natural levels of stomach acid. So then suddenly you do like a paleo diet and you're eating like hamburgers three times a day, you know, which isn't the way you should do it, but you know, this is what people do. Um, you can't digest that, right? So you might be eating the food, but but you're not actually absorbing it. So I will check that. Like, let's make sure digestive function is optimized, which means no bloating, normal bristle for bowel movements once a day, um, things like that, because otherwise we got to address digestive function. And I'd certainly look at sleep, hydration, social support, daylight exposure, things like that. I don't know if you had a follow-up question. Anthony, you have that puzzled look on your face. <laughs> Can I ask a secure question? Or are you going to, do you want to clarify that? <laughs> You're on mute, by the way. We can't hear you. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the computer just told me I was mute too. Um, <laughs> I, I did have that puzzled look on my face. So um, just really quickly, a little bit of fat, a little bit of protein, um, and fiber, like they were the three things that you mentioned a few times. So fat, uh, protein, fiber, and fiber is usually going to be from the vegetables. Um, and that seems to be the consistent thing through there. Now, you know, I'm being selfish as well, because I'm thinking, oh man, I've got to sort out my bottom of the pyramid because I am the bottom of the pyramid at the moment. Um, so, like we're talking leafy greens, we're talking fibrous vegetables. Um, are, you know, do you have any specific recommendations? Because otherwise, people are going to do things like eat corn and carrots and oh, yes. sweet potato and potato, and you know what I mean. Yes. No, that's a very that's yes, that's a very good question. You know, it's funny. Sometimes I, I really I do forget. Like I had a patient the other day who when you eat this way for a long time, you sort of you're in, you live in a bubble a little bit. And I had a patient the other day who was like, Well, I'm craving comfort foods. Can you give me some recipes? And I'm like, Oh yeah, let's make like a nice beef stew and we have Italian sausage soup. And she's like, No. She's like, I meant like cookies and lattes. And I was like, Oh, okay change that. So, um, <laughs> which we can't adapt, but it's not quite the same thing. So vegetables, yes. Um, so starchy vegetables, which essentially is sweet potato, squashes, squash, spaghetti squash, or uh, you call them courgette, something like that. Um, that is like the starchier vegetables, still good, still full of nutrients, have some of that. What you, want to, what you want to have most of is the less starchy vegetables, which is leafy greens, um, mushrooms, all kinds of mushrooms are so good. They're also really good for the immune system. Um, asparagus, peppers, um, you know, tomatoes. Tomatoes technically a fruit, but it's good. Onions, garlic, um, things like that. So, 
yes, you want like the whole variety of vegetables. Corn is actually a grain, so that's not a vegetable. Potatoes are fine too uh, for most people. Now, there's an interesting caveat. Nightshade vegetables can be problematic for people who have more pain. And not so much in rheumatoid pain, although it can be an issue. It's an, it's an autoimmune uh, effect, has an autoimmune effect. But also even in orthopedic pain. So your patients who have more pelvic ring pain or more joint pain, not like more soft tissue pain or deeper pain, sometimes can be sensitive to nightshade vegetables. And those are your potatoes, tomatoes, eggplants, you can look them up, tomatillos, you know, um, the nightshade family, and also peppers, which is kind of problematic, like especially when I was living in Texas, because you can't use like pepper spices, like chili powder and, um, you know, things like that, hot red, hot red peppers. So one of my patients a long time ago, she was actually a physical therapist herself, and she had had a spine fracture from a minor car accident. Later they found out she was osteopretic because she had celiac disease, and, and so she took out the gluten and finally able to absorb nutrients, but she still had this nagging pain in her back years later. And we took out the nightshades just for like a three-week trial which was really painful on her husband who loved to cook. <laughs> and, um, but they've since adapted and that was it. Like just getting rid of that completely got rid of her pain. Now that was a point where she had already done a lot of foundational work, but that's the only time that vegetables are an issue. Otherwise all vegetables lean on the, the less starchy vegetables. I'm not opposed to potatoes um, unless there's a nightshade issue, but more starchy vegetables, this, I mean, more or less starchy vegetables and then more like the squashes and potatoes as support. Corn is a grain, so you have to count it with the grains, not the vegetables. That's awesome. Jessica, um, you touched a little bit on sort of food sensitivities in that. Um, I think one of the challenging, challenging things here in Australia, and maybe it's similar in the US, is that it's um, quite difficult to find people to actually either run some kind of testing or guide people through an elimination process. Um, I do know there's quite a few doctors that I've come in contact with who really don't believe in nutritional health at all, uh, but that's a whole other story. Uh, what would be your recommendation for someone if they suspected they had a food sensitivity? What would be the best path for them to go down? Generally speaking, the most evidence-based thing to do is an elimination diet. So for three weeks, you, I, I actually say four weeks because it takes three weeks for the immune system to kind of quiet down for all the antibodies to be reabsorbed if there are any floating around. So if you go for four weeks with a hundred percent consistency, the best you can, knowing that, you know, occasionally there might be something that you didn't know was in your food or whatever, but just go for a hundred percent consistency for four weeks, eliminating general elimination diet but most things um they can be fine-tuned you know but like i said like the nightshades are occasionally an issue that's not something i would take out right off the bat but if you eliminate dairy gluten sugar soy eggs and peanuts i would probably throw peanuts in there and that's it for for those four weeks 
and you otherwise eat, you know, a pretty balanced protein, fat, fiber plan that's vegetable heavy, um, but does have some animal protein and you can have beans, that's fine, um, nuts and seeds, then you should feel better after those four weeks. If you don't, there are things that certain people are unusually sensitive to. Things like nightshades, things like um, lectins, which are in beans. And some people need to have those cooked to really tolerate them well or to make sure they're getting adequate digestive enzymes. Sometimes you just need to support digestion better. You know, we have to look at stomach acid, digestive enzymes stress, chewing, movement, you know, did they have a surgery in their digestive system somewhere, you know, because there are complexities sometimes. For autoimmune cases, sometimes we do have to take the nightshades out. Sometimes we do have to take out things like nuts and seeds. But that basic elimination diet is a really good step towards knowing if you're on the right track. After that, I, I, it's really more evidence-based to work with a practitioner to start to think about fine-tuning. There are some, some lab tests that I do run. One is just kind of a general look at the colon, the bacteria in the colon, and if there's any inflammation there and things like that and through a stool test. And there's another test uh, that called urinary organic acid test that helps me to see nutrients are being absorbed or not, or if there's like more nutrient deficiency. But food sensitivity testing, like IgG testing and some of the other like blood work you can get to look at food sensitivities are notoriously unreliable. I think in context, like if you've already done an elimination diet, people have really cleaned up their nutrition. Like a lot of times on these uh, food sensitivity tests, there's a lot of things that show up that are random, like, oh my gosh, now I'm also allergic to blueberries and coconut, and like people get afraid of eating, which is unnecessary. The reason a lot of different things are showing up is because that barrier, remember we talked about in the beginning how the small intestine lining is kind of like an internal skin, the barrier's irritated. So anything that you're gonna, you're gonna eat is gonna be riling up the immune system, right? Because no whole chunks of blueberries are supposed to be exposed to your immune system. You got to chew them. You got to break them down in the stomach. The, the lining has to be intact. And if it's not, then your immune system is going to be kind of hyperreactive to a little bit of everything. And, and what I don't like about those tests is they begin to get people really afraid of eating, where what we have to do is nourish to heal. Like we have to be adding in this quality nutrition. So Food sensitivity testing has a, has a rare place when everything else is kind of being well managed and you know, there are the occasional outlier people who are sensitive to obscure things, but that's not the vast majority of, of the cases. So I do know, I'll see if I can uh, find you a few people in Australia and I, I know at least one great nutritionist in Australia and one in New Zealand um, and they may have more local networks there. And a lot of um, kind of integrative practitioners do practice like this, uh, you know, actually, um, but I would not, Again, it's the same thing as like what we've been talking about the whole time. I wouldn't jump into a lot of lab testing. Literally, there are only three labs that I run on a regular basis. 
stool testing, organic acids testing to see if nutrients are being absorbed. And there's a good uh, kind of general hormone test called the Dutch test, which will give me some idea of what cortisol is doing, you know, if someone's really low and all their sex hormones are really high in one, how those are being metabolized. That's it. And, and for a lot of people, I don't even do that until we've got the foundation set. Because if you're running a lot of expensive, not evidence-based tests without having done the first core work, then you're going to get data that's useless. If you've done the work, then sometimes a test can be valuable to start, you know, where should we go? Is there like, a, you know, is there an underlying infection? Um, is there some kind of kind of like mercury toxicity, you know, there are these other physiologic stressors, but most of them are resolved by going right back to the foundation. Some of, um, some of the tests that, um, <laughs> that I've heard of just recently, um, because it was to do with, uh, you know, food and, you know, gout, pain, uh, bad breath for for somebody that I know, um, like a full GI panel, micronutrient studies, oral DNA, um, clinical chemistry, CBC, complete metabolic panel, uh, testosterone, estrogen, uh, inflammation, so CRP, ESR, uric acid, um, things like that. They were all, I think, expensive as well. Um, and you're saying that before somebody runs off to do a big panel like that, it might be worthwhile taking care of the baseline first and then you'd work into those sorts of things. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Yes, to some degree. Now, there are some traditional medical tests that you mentioned in there, like the CBC and the uh, HSCRP or like whatever your version is of the inflammation test. Again, that can be just generally useful to make sure there's like no big red flags. Um, and those in the US anyway, generally aren't super expensive because most of them would be covered if you had insurance, which oh, I don't know. That's a whole other conversation, but assuming you have health insurance. Um, so but even still, so let's imagine someone shows up in your office, they're four months postpartum, they're extremely fatigued, they're heavy, their hair's falling out, you know, they're having anxiety, and, and their, their joints hurt. And I run an inflammation test. Well, I mean, it's probably going to be high, right? Wouldn't it make more sense to set the foundation for a month and a half, you know, unless you're just worried that there's some insidious serious problem but that picture is really common and it's you know it's not likely it was like a lot of my friends when I was in graduate school were a physician trained to be physician assistants and the whole motto of that program is like don't look for zebras treat horses right so what's most common so first let's have a conversation with this woman what's her support network like is she getting any sleep what kind of food does she have access to and able to cook? Can we help her cook in a way that's more sustainable? You know, does her partner or a teenage friend or someone, can they help her? You know, does she have time to go to the grocery store? Can she take her baby outside for a walk for 15 minutes 
today. You know, if we do these things for a month or six weeks or three months, and then if we still need to, I mean, if suddenly, you know, first of all, a lot of the symptoms are going to be less, right? So we're like, well, we probably don't need to run that inflammation test because her joints don't hurt anymore. Um, so that's my, my perspective. It's really the same as from when I was a physical therapist. You know, I would recommend people back to an orthopedic surgeon to have an MRI uh, done if my three months of back pain intervention didn't have, you know, the, the prognosis or the changes weren't what I was expecting. Then it's like, oh, well, maybe there is something you know, maybe there's a bigger baby problem. Maybe there's a fracture there that we, we can't see or whatever. So that's the way, the same way that I feel about running a lot of labs. I just think that it doesn't change what you're going to do from a treatment perspective. So it's just, it's waste resources. But more than that, it's, it's people really afraid of the things that they probably are going to need to to change. That's great. That's great. I love it. Common sense approach, uh, <laughs> and and simple, right? Simple. Um, I was interested. You know, when we did that little diastasis thing, um, and I was interested uh, about changing your nutrition. I'm interested in, in this type of approach for people with pelvic organ prolapse, people with stress urinary incontinence, diastasis. We've already talked about vulvodynia, you know, chronic pelvic pain, like endometriosis. How does this approach uh, help those people who have traditionally been seen to have a structural deficit, you know? Um, not strong enough yeah. pelvic floor, pelvic floor not attached, uh, walls that have been stretched out and pelvic organs dropping through, linear alba not um, having the tension and the, and the ability to transfer load across it. How does, how does this um, integrative medicine approach uh, go with those sorts of traditionally structural uh, diagnoses? Yeah, well, actually, I learned a lot from kind of exploring that in my own body with you. And, and, and even actually since our last course in Austin, that there's a couple things. I think step one would be, if let's talk diastasis first, because um, that's most obvious. First of all, if it's not truly diastasis, if it's really more just skin and fat, then, I mean, you've got to lose that belly fat somehow, right? So that's, that's step one. And that's really all the nutrition that we've been talking about. And, and mostly less carbs, less sugar fluctuations, definitely less sugar, caffeine, alcohol, things like that. Um, but also what I've noticed kind of in my own body was that really interesting case that you showed where you know, we had one woman who had a clear physiologic diastasis. You could kind of stick your hand in the space, right? Then you had the other woman who kind of in, didn't really look like she had a diastasis, but there's that kind of weakness in the muscle or in the fascia behind the muscle. Erin, um, I think was her name, if that makes sense, if you're remembering that. So what I'm noticing as I kind of go back and integrate that is that when you're bloated, you're gonna be pushing into that fascia 
from an intestine standpoint, even if it's not a big split, it's just that the fascia is relatively weaker. Now, it may never really go back. I mean, the, level, the ability of the fascia to kind of restore all, all the way back to kind of its pre-pregnancy state depends on the degree of severity, right? But what I've noticed is that, huh, if we, if we take the bloating out, you don't have that constant pressure from the back. And so when you're doing all the myofascial strengthening and lifting and alignment and movement, you're having less pressure on the fascia just day-to-day -day standing up. And so everything else that you're doing is going to be restoring um, at least stability to some degree, if not actually changing the fascia. Um, so I think from the inside, we can work on bloating is a key problem. We can work on any belly fat, extra skin. Eh, I don't know what you can do there really. Probably not a heck of a lot. Also, and, and I think the same goes for um, pelvic floor. If someone just is carrying a lot of extra weight or they're carrying weight and they're kind of contracting against it all the time they're sort of like in that constant state of, of mild tension um, then you know just healthy weight loss is going to be useful now if you have like a vulvar uh, a pelvic floor muscle avulsion or something like that I don't know that that's gonna we can't really do anything biochemically there you have to fix it um, but the other thing biochemically is it takes nutrients to build collagen. So it takes protein, primarily amino acids. It also takes some cofactors like vitamin C. So I've been working with, I have worked with a number of uh, like fitness professionals who maybe had a big diastasis their first pregnancy and kind of couldn't get back to that heavy stuff and then got pregnant again, but we kept them really eating cleanly and again, it comes down to nutrient absorption, right? So if you, you can use collagen protein powder as a source of protein, or you can just eat meat, you know, you can do whatever you want. The amino acids are the same. They're a little bit easier digested in, in a protein powder, but assuming your digestive function is good, high quality animal protein or plant protein will give you those amino acids. You have the cofactors such as vitamin C through the vegetables and fruits that you're eating. Um, then you have the raw materials. So when your body is trying to heal those areas with collagen and you know, bring blood flow and all of that, you've got the macro and micronutrients that you need for that healing. And I think that's really how we can support that uh, in combination with the physical therapy work. That's um, extremely fascinating, Jessica. It's very, very fascinating stuff. Um, mm, there's much, there's much to think about, and obviously, one of the questions that I'm going to ask is, you know, how do I learn more about this stuff? How, how do, like, just assume I'm general public, right? Um, how does the general public get information about this sort of thing? Um, well, <laughs> you can read my book. That would be a good place to start. We have a Kindle book. You know book? I, I do. It just came out oh. like 
two yeah, weeks ago say, or something. I didn't know you had yeah. a book launch. <laughs> it's like, oh. Actually, the book launched the day of your course. So it was only like two weeks ago. Oh, why don't you say something? Congratulations. <laughs> well, you know, I was, wow. I was learning. I was learning. Um, I didn't, I didn't have any, but it's all, it's Kindle. You can get it on Amazon. That is a pelvic pain specific, but honestly, the, 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 the story is the same. You know, you've got to address the foundation. And when I've seen patients with diastasis address the foundation, starting from beginning of pregnancy and you know, sometimes we in the first pregnancy because you don't know what you're in for, for the first pregnancy. But I think one of the great times women can start learning about this is postpartum from whichever most recent pregnancy they're in, in preparation for the next pregnancy or just in healing for good for themselves. Because what I do see commonly when people implement this during pregnancy is it's so supportive of their postpartum recovery. Like postpartum recovery is like built, it's sort of like, you know, you're competition is built in the off season, right? Postpartum recovery is built during pregnancy. And when women eat and take care of themselves and do all this during pregnancy, you know, I've had a lot of my patients see other physical therapists because I work remotely. So, you know, often I'm collaborating with people in, in, on the ground and they're always saying that, you know, their tissues are in better shape. Well, sure. Cause they've got the nutrients they need for the healing. So I think the pelvic pain book is a place to start, certainly if you have pelvic pain, but also just generally um, speaking in terms of setting the foundation. Um, my friend Isabella Wentz wrote a great book on Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So that's the most common thyroid issue. So if you're struggling with anything thyroid related, it's a very similar approach for that. Um, and I think really just focusing on the foundation, which ideally you'll be working with a nutritionist that has this approach. And there are, you know, many of those people kind of scattered around the world. Um, and we, we do have a directory on our website. So our website is Integrative Women's Health Institute. We've trained practitioners in more than 60 countries now. So we're starting to build out a directory of nutritionists and coaches and physical therapists who take this approach um, and even some gynecologists which is really exciting um, so, so you know and and I think you know certainly we're a resource we have social media and things like that and as you said you know I'm the same way like ask me a question feel free to send me a message I will respond to you or someone will on our team for sure Jessica I'm, I'm really cognizant of the fact that we've had you for over an hour can I ask you two more questions? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> you're, allowed to, you're allowed to say no. Um, one question I, well, it's kind of a statement slash conversation starter. Um, a lot of women ask me, how long should I wait between um, children? Um, and I, I'm, I know we've had a lot of information that's come out in recent years about postnatal depletion. And I do worry about the mums who have perhaps a stressful birth um, and then they get pregnant while breastfeeding and then breastfeeding while pregnant. Uh, you know, and I do, I do worry sometimes that women don't have that opportunity to restock because you said babies will basically suck the nutrients out of your tissues. Um, and without that ability to sort of stop breastfeeding, replenish, restock, um, do you think that's a bit of a precursor to having? Yeah, I think it's ideal to have about three months at least of real recovery. 
But, you know, there are a lot of people who get pregnant and get pregnant again and get pregnant again who don't do it back to back, who also don't recover. So you can think of this again. I, I like to think of pregnancy as, again, sort of that athlete mindset, right? So it takes about the same amount of energy. It's, it's a bit of a contact sport in delivery at times. And um, so ideally, there's a recovery to every season. But sometimes that just doesn't happen for any number of reasons. So if you're fueling, you know, you want to be even more fueling. You want to be even more sleeping. You know, you're going to be integrating in the sleep, the hydration, downtime, restorative exercise, yin yoga, massage therapy, movement. You know, you, you can't always be in like power training mode. And, and so for my athletes, we periodize that to the menstrual cycle to kind of take advantages of some of the highs and lows in, in hormone shifts. Um, in pregnancy, you don't have that same shift, but yes, it would be more ideal to restore the nutrients, to get some sleep, to recover. But if you don't, you want to be fueling like you're, you know, in competition. And that doesn't mean a lot of sugar. That means, that doesn't mean a lot of calories. It means a lot of nutrients. Uh, it's a little bit more calories, um, but it's definitely a lot of nutrients. So that's the kind of person who's going to need some supplemental shakes, who's going to need some, you know, to be eating like soup for, for dinner and breakfast. And, you know, you can't fuel back-to-back -back pregnancies on coffee. Yeah, I'm thinking about a, um, a boss of mine in London who had who was pregnant with twins and she couldn't keep anything down. And apparently she could literally keep in her stomach was cookies. And he grew two, three kilo babies on cookies. And I afterwards I was like, oh my God, like what is left within you? Yeah. <laughs> because she couldn't, she couldn't feel that. I was like, that's amazing that the babies can still um, manage to thrive. Yeah, I mean, they take it from somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, now, I would say that even my patients who are like, awesome, you know, they're fitness professionals and they're eating really well and they recovered postpartum the first time and we have them on the whole plan. Sometimes they have three or four months where they're puking the whole time, right? And so, or you're just nauseous and you can only handle whatever and you can't stick to that kind of less grains thing because it's the only thing you can eat. And I don't worry about that. I just relax through that. There's lots of other foundational things we take care of. You eat whatever you can tolerate. We try to keep it as nutrient dense as possible. Don't get stressed. There's an opportunity to recover. Take, make sure you're taking your prenatal vitamins and like blend things up and eat cold things or hot things, whatever works for you. You know, we can make crackers out of almond flour. Like there's a way to adapt everything to make it a little more nutrient dense. But at the end of the day, if that's all you can stomach, what I would have done in her case is seeing if we could buffer that with some of the other foundational aspects. How else could we support her just recovery? But also I might have tried some more creative things like could we get cookies that are more nutrient dense? I mean, you could bake them with nut flours or you could add in some greens powder, or protein powder, um, things like that. There are ways to to kind of make anything you, you can tolerate a little more palatable. It's like feeding your kids, isn't it? Like putting it, hiding as many vegetables in the stuff as you can. Yeah, it's like when you puree <laughs> spinach and cook it into brownies and stuff. You could do that if you had to. <laughs>
<laughs> and I had, I just have one last question, Jessica, and then um, I promise you'll let you go. Uh, I just wanted to ask one question about exercise and cortisol, because I think um, mums, you know, especially if they're in that weight loss mindset and will think, you know, exercising, the, using Anthony's terms, the harder, the better. Um, there can be this mindset that if they're not losing weight quickly, it's because they're not doing enough. So therefore they need to do more. Did you have any thoughts about, um, about that? Yeah, in my experience, they're actually usually, usually doing too much intensity. Um, so I have them ask themselves a question after their workout. Right after this workout, two hours later and the next morning, do I feel more nourished or more depleted? So right after the workout, sometimes they get that like runner's high and they're like, I feel great. And then like two hours later, they're like, give me all the cake and I'm starving and I'm hung and I'm thirsty and I'm going to fall asleep. And then in the next morning they're like, uh, you know, it was too much. So if they're in that like overtraining crash, overtraining crash, you know, cycle, then it's just too intense. It's far more for cortisol balance to be relatively consistent you know, certainly there can be a couple of rest days a week, but you want people mostly exercising almost every day, but not to the point of exhaustion when we're looking to recover from pregnancy and lose weight. Because actually that will increase cortisol levels, which will have them holding on to belly fat. So you can progress um, but be mindful of cortisol, especially if they've already had that deep adrenal fatigue, you've got to kind of recover the stress buffering system. Exercise is going to raise cortisol levels unless it's, you know, restorative, something literally like in yoga, which isn't a bad thing from a transient perspective, but, you know, and, and things like 10 minutes of heavier strength training is going to be far more valuable than like an hour long spin class. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So you would say to your clients, how do you feel in the, in the two hours afterwards? How do you feel the next day when you roll out of bed? Right. So right after the class, two hours later and the next morning. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Thank you. That, I really appreciate that. They're, they're, great, they're great questions to ask. And um, yeah, you know, i got to up my game is what I'm sitting here thinking. Um, <laughs> the... Um, you, you just triggered, I know that Marika said two more questions, but you just triggered another one um, in what you were saying. Um, I, I do get asked a lot about exercise and conception um, and does, does exercise affect IVF success rates? Does exercise affect getting pregnant um, the traditional way? Um, do you have any very brief words on that? It can. Um, if you have, again, too much intensity, so I'll give you an example. I had a patient who uh, had PCOS. You would normally think more exercise, the better, right? It tends to be a heavier profile, someone with kind of pre-diabetes almost, so needs to exercise for the insulin sensitivity, improving insulin sensitivity. But she was doing like boot camp every day with like the guys from her office. She was working in like a really intense um, finance job. She was on, on, on. And in her case, both her PCOS, her insulin balance, her fertility dramatically improved when we, when we weaved in kind of lowering the intensity, more, you know, 
alternating it with more restorative exercise. There's a woman named Anne Domar, who I think she works at Harvard now or somewhere in Boston. She's been studying essentially mindfulness, kind of like restorative movement practice with IVF for a long time. And it's not to say that people shouldn't exercise to get pregnant or if they're having IVF because there's so many benefits exercise from an inflammation standpoint, but it has to be a not too much intensity. And so it may be every day, you know, or maybe like three, four times a week doing like a longer walk or even a, even a lower intensity cardio workout, maybe 45 minutes on an hour or something like that. I am still a big fan of relatively heavy lifting like twice a week, but of shorter duration. Um, because that's so good for insulin resistance. And that's one of the biggest problems when we're talking about fertility and hormones. Cause again, it's the base of the, the, um, triangle or whatever you want to call it, base of the pyramid. And so, but it's that intensity. It's when people are doing boot camps and spin classes or their heavy strength training an hour or two or three a day that could be too much, especially if they don't have the foundation in place. Yeah. Thank you. I feel like, I feel like <laughs> we really have wandered, you know, all over the place with this integrative health topic. Um, I, I think I'm going to call the episode an introduction to integrative health <laughs> because it's like scraping the bits off all the different topics and like, wow, I want to learn more about that. Wow, I want to learn more about that. So um, look, there's so much that uh, we would love to learn more and, and hopefully, you know, we can catch up again and, and touch on some more topics. Really, really enjoyed uh, having you on the show and really appreciated your time and, and your wisdom and, um, and, you know, catching up in person was fantastic. Um, both in Melbourne and in um, in Austin this year, um, so that was um, it's it's been great and and love your work, Jessica. And uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say except thank you, thank you so very much, and for fitting us into your schedule. Well, thank you. Right. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Jessica. And what's the name of your book again? Just so people can find it. Nutrition for relieving pelvic pain. And they can, and people can get that on Amazon. Yeah, it's a it's a Kindle book, but you can put a Kindle app on any device and just download it. Yeah, yeah. And we hope wanna... to have it in print in a few in a month or two. Yeah. Oh, perfect. And if people want to learn more, make sure you go to Jessica's website as well, the Integrated Women's Health Institute, um, and she has a very active newsletter uh, which you can sign on to. I get ones more for practitioners. Is it is it a separate one for um, general public? Do you have a Yes and no right now. It's a lot of overlap for um, everybody at this point, but we are steadily kind of segmenting that out. So but thank you guys so much for having me. It's been really fun. I always love, you know, chatting with you. So yeah. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you very much. Chat soon. Well, that's it for this episode. Please be sure to hit like if you enjoyed this episode and leave any comments or questions below because we'd really love to hear from you. If you haven't already hit subscribe, please do so now so that you can be kept notified of when we release a new episode. Otherwise, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you back with us for another episode of the Women's Health Podcast.
Uh, Dr. Jessica Drummond is a passion. How about we start that again? So we thought we'd get Dr. Drummond, Dr. Jessica Drummond. Oy. So I, you know, oy, 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 oy. hey everybody, welcome to the show. Today we've got Dr. Jessica Drummond, who's the founder of the. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Today we've got Dr. Jessica pain conditions and hormonal imbalances, as well in helping. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. We've got Dr. Hope you enjoyed those outtakes. Make sure that you hit like or subscribe or both, and we'll get you some more episodes on the way in the new year. Cheers.